Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Five, four, three, two, one... But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm going to tell you a story. So if you are a person of a certain age, meaning if you are in high school and college, 1983, you probably listened to the radio or watched MTV. And if you did, there's a song that would have been very popular that you would no doubt remember. A song by the group called Fix. The title, One Thing Leads to Another. Trust me, that's going to be the theme of our conversation this week. More on that in a second. The lyrics. You told me something wrong. I know I listen too long, but one thing leads to another. Then it's easy to believe somebody's been lying to me. But when the wrong word goes in the right ear, I know you've been lying to me. It's getting rough off the cuff. I've got to say enough's enough. It's a very catchy tune, super popular in the United Kingdom, super popular here in the United States. Why do I bring that up? One thing leads to another. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the theme of the book we're going to be talking about this week. The book is called Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. The author, Matthew Dalek, is with us. Matt, it's great to see you. It's great to see you too, Major, and uh, I love that song. It's, I remember it from my MTV days. <laughs> One thing leads to another. That's the theme of this book, how a group of people on the conservative, hard, extreme right in the 50s are still with us now. One thing has led to another. Yeah, well, and one of the th- things that I'm interested in documenting in the book is how the ideas lead to another, right? How the ideas uh, get seeded and then other people pick them up, like people I call successors. And so the Birchers had their heyday in the 1960s when in places like San Diego, Mm -hmm. but all over the country, they were notorious, you know, pretty much a household name. And the ideas, though, uh, once they fade by the early 70s, people pick up on the anti-establishment, more violent mode of politics, a more explicit racism, anti-interventionism, right, isolationism at a time when the Cold War was still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the conspiracy theories. And so um, one of the things is the ideas, right, and how they lead uh, and the kind of afterlife of those ideas. So... Let's start with some very basics. We'll get to the society in a second, but who was John Birch as a person? Yeah, John Birch, whose name would not otherwise probably be known today, was an evangelist turned Army intelligence officer. And he was in China in World War II with the U.S. Army, and he was killed 
murdered by Mao's communist forces about 10 days after World War II. And Robert Welch, the founder of the society, wrote a biography of Birch alleging that his murder was covered up. And that he was essentially the first victim of the Cold War. Exactly. The first American to die at the hands of our Cold War communist enemies. And it was no surprise to Robert Welch in this mythology retelling that he was a Christian evangelist. And on top of that, though, what Killed by it, the godless communists. Killed by the godless communists. But what made it really galling to him was that it was also covered up by our own government, according mm-hmm. to him. And so in the kind of martyrdom story that he tells, the crime is not just that, you know, the evil communists had had murdered him in cold blood and that he was the first victim, as you say, but that the United States State Department, right, our own leaders knew about this. And because they were sympathetic to the communists, they hid it from the public. So said Robert Welch, the founder of the Birch Society. Yes. And that this idea that the communist threat within at the highest levels of American government and life, uh, that was the animating impulse behind, you know, Robert Welch's movement and also a lot of other Birchers. And just for the benefit of those who know or remember John Birch, separate from the Birch Society, he was, by all accounts, a solid member of the United States Army, brave, courageous, uh, innovative. Yeah, there's actually a, a book, a biography written about him by a, by a scholar that came out in 2014. And uh, his parents, though, in Georgia, at first embraced the use of his name. Okay. And they blessed it. But uh, after a while, I think they were less happy with it. I don't get into that story in the, in the book. Um, but there's no evidence that John Birch would have been a wild about the idea of his name being appropriate. And again, his name probably would have been lost to history. Otherwise. Were it not for, yeah, this branding. So when we say one thing leads to another, folks, uh, let's just talk about a couple things that are very much in our conversation now. Vaccine skepticism. Well, the Birchers were against fluoride in the water. They're not exactly the same, but one thing leads to another. Yeah, so... The, the fluoridation is a great example. So the Birchers often argued that fluoridation was either part of a communist plot or that, as they said, it was a massive wedge for socialized medicine. And there was a deep skepticism of both public health dictates, as they saw them, but also government, mm-hmm. the federal government or local government, telling you not just what to do, but what to put in your body. And fluoride touched on that. Um, and... That's, I think, a fairly common set of arguments or ideas that the vaccine deniers, right, uh, right. Have, have also wielded. Are those who resisted mask mandates or those who resisted yeah. or were skeptical of social distancing? Yeah. All the things done on the na- in the name of public health had, for those who resisted it, the same yeah. overhang to their mind of government control, government interference, dictates, yeah. and interference. And as the Bircher said, and as contemporary MAGA uh, people argue, uh, that this was a way of trampling on and really eviscerating the Constitution. You were depriving, their argument was you were depriving people of their individual liberties and forcing them, in a sense, in this authoritarian sort of way to, and that that was deeply un-American. And I think that those ideas, those arguments have been updated for a different set of mm-hmm. COVID issues, but but really resonate in the anti-fluoride uh, campaign that the Birchers uh, helped pioneer. And when former President Trump tries to defend himself against uh, indictments at the federal level, he brands the prosecutors Marxists and communists, enemies yeah. from within, yeah. who are destroying the yeah. country. So Not well, altogether different than a Birchian approach to what government can or will do. Absolutely. The Birchers, one of their key insights, I think, and I call it an insight for a reason, is that they understood how conspiracy theories and arguing that the enemy was within, was inside the government that could mobilize a subset of Americans to get active in the struggle for power. And it could be very effective politically. And the, the, the beauty of it for them was that even if members didn't necessarily think everyone was a card carrying communist that they charged, that it was a kind of catch all 
right? It sort of said, it was a language that said, this person is against the Constitution, they're anti-American, they're not a patriot, and they are turning the country into something that it was never meant to be. And that shorthand, which Trump, I think, employs as well, um, speaks to his followers in a similar kind of way that I think it spoke to a lot of members of the Birch Society and people who sympathized with them. Mm -hmm. And our internet culture makes that much more rapidly expressed and amplified, does it not? Yeah, I mean, the internet, uh, I think, has made it much harder, frankly, for Republican mandarins over the past couple decades, and especially the past decade, to control these kind of conspiracy theories. So someone like Mitch McConnell, for example, who doesn't seem to be a big fan of the big lie, right, right? that, that the 2020 election was stolen, um, and is certainly not a fan of Trump, um, it makes it harder for someone like that in a position of authority to contain these kinds of um, the kind of language, right, that Marxist communists, but also these conspiracy theories that were better contained in the 1960s and 70s. And we'll talk about the 60s and 70s when, if you traveled our country, you could see Birch billboards about issues and you heard about them mentioned, and they were an issue for the Republican Party to use Matt Dalek's word, contain. I'm Major Garrett. Matt Dalek is our guest. Birchers is the book. We'll be back for segment two in one second. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to The Takeout. By the way, we're at Riss Restaurant having lunch. One of our favorite locations. They're always hospitable to us. We thank Riss for their hospitality. Matt Dalek is our special guest. Matt, tell my audience who your dad is. Uh, how how, he, how no, old he is? No, who he is. Oh, who he is, yes. Uh, well, my dad, who I dedicate. he's famous, people. Yes, yes. I dedicate the book uh, to my dad. Uh, he's a presidential historian. Named? Robert Dalek, mm-hmm. uh, very famous presidential written, historian, written I believe fifteen books, mm-hmm. won a Bancroft Prize, and had a number one New York Times bestseller for an unfinished life, uh, for his John F. Kennedy biography, in which he, among other things, revealed the uh, John F. Kennedy's health, serious health problems for the first time. How did growing up in that family and with that famous father influence your life? Well, that's a, a great question. Um, look, on one level, it was an inspiration, right? Because I saw my dad in the study behind our house in Los Angeles, and he'd have these piles of documents that he had gotten from the archives or copied from the archives. And he was working away for years, right, on these books. And so I got a kind of intuitive feel for not just archival research, but how exciting it can be, right? Because you're finding stuff that maybe people have not seen in decades. Mm-hmm. And if, or ever. Or ever. Or if they've seen it. Or only a select few, few yep. people saw them and didn't want the public to see them. Exactly. I was they hoping they would never that's find right. them. That's right. And that might also be lost for who knows how long if you don't actually find a way to incorporate it. So that was really cool and exciting. Um, he was also a great uh, professor when he taught at UCLA mm-hmm. uh, for three decades. He would have 400 students in a lecture class and we give him standing ovations on the last day of the class. I mean, he really was, uh, uh, so very inspiring. At first though, um, I went to grad school, I got a PhD, but I decided I did not want to go into academia right away. And I actually went and worked in politics for a few years. I worked as a speech writer. Um, and I slowly kind of made my way back though, to finding really try to find my own path 
realized I liked teaching, um, I liked writing mm-hmm. and researching, and uh, and kind of made my peace with the fact that uh, I'll never write as many books as, as the 15 he's written. Very good, very good. So when we went to break, we talked about the Birchers in the 60s, which was, in one way, their heyday, but now I would say they have an indirect heyday that's even bigger than the 60s. But talk about the Birchers in the 60s. Well, the Birchers in the 60s, it's, it's really... Which is what the shorthand was, ladies and gentlemen, the Birchers. Yeah, yeah, the Birchers and... Uh, or just Birchers. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's hard to recall. Uh, it's hard to kind of capture how big a deal they were. Because, so for example, um, Bob Dylan did an entire song talking John Birch paranoid blues. The Chad Mitchell trio did a song about the Birchers. They became really embedded in the culture. And um, they were known to critics as deeply conspiratorial and a threat to democracy because they had uh, uh, really smeared people like Dwight Eisenhower, who Robert Welch once labeled a dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. Right. So the leader of this group said the president of the United States... Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, oversaw D-Day and everything that flowed from it, was a committed communist agent. Well, and also, of course, the leader of the Republican Party. (laughs) So, So, uh, out there, ladies and gentlemen, way out there. And when that news broke, and also because the Birchers were secretive, they had 20-person chapters. We'll get into why for, uh, about yeah. that in a second. Yes, and they didn't like to disclose who their members were. And so, remember, in the 15 years after the defeat of Nazi Germany, there were many fears in the United States of kind of homegrown fascist movements. And so critics were alarmed by the Birchers. They called them really the most uh, violent and aggressive and an ugly far-right threat since, say, the brown shirt threat of or America First of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, though, they were mocked, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people, they were called little old ladies in tennis shoes. Pathetic, right? Kind of like these are, are crazy people. They're part of this paranoid, you know, minority and they're going to go the way of the horse and buggy. And so there was this interesting debate. And then you had conservatives like William Buckley or Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, who struggle, or Nixon, and they struggle with how to handle them. Because they knew at the grassroots they were active, they voted, yeah. they talked, yeah. they organized. They were not pivotal, but they were not someone you yeah. could ignore or antagonize without yeah. risk. So, yeah, and just a very brief story. Uh, some listeners may know it. So Richard Nixon, 1962, the former vice president, mm-hmm. went back to California, ran for governor. I mean, he's a, he's a giant, right? A political giant. And the Birchers hated Nixon. And Nixon hated the Birchers. And he denounced him very aggressively. And in that primary, Nixon was challenged by a guy from his right named Joe Schell. I think a former quarterback at USC, mm-hmm. a leader in, in California legislature. And he took about a third of the vote because he had a lot of the Birch energy and Birch support. And that damaged Nixon in the general election, which he lost to Pat Brown, the Democrat. And that was kind of an object lesson in what can happen if you go too far to denounce your so-called far-right base. And, of course, the historical irony there, ladies and gentlemen, is in the House of Representatives, Richard Nixon made his name as a virulent anti-communist who exposed Alger Hiss, or helped to expose Alger Hiss, but he wasn't anti-communist yeah. enough for the Birchers. Yeah. So one of the things I argue in the book is that there is a significant division, an ideological division between the Bircher fringe and these more mainstream conservatives, even Goldwater, but also Nixon and Reagan, who often rejected, especially in government, a lot of the Birch ideas. They rejected the conspiracy theories oftentimes um, and uh, were much more pragmatic as well. Uh, and so that tension, I mean, you can see it in 62, you can see it in a, you know, throughout the book, I think, as well, uh, but it's a real fissure. And, and yet, you know, the dilemma, of course, is that uh, people like Goldwater, even Reagan, you know, they need to be careful not to go too far to alienate uh, potential supporters. How much of the origins of the Birch Society were racist or anti-Semitic? Well, um, look, the Birchers maintained that they refused to have uh, uh, KKK members. They were not racist. They had some Jewish members, some African-American members. 
What I document in the book, though, is that there were many uh, bigots who were both at the top of the organization and also bubbling up from below. And I, I show that in, in the memos they write and the speeches that they give. The language they use. The language they use. And the other thing is that, you know, the Birch argument, the society's official argument, which I think many members believed, was that the civil rights movement in the mid-1960s was a plot directed from the Kremlin. And that was similar to what that a lot of— if it of, weren't for Moscow's meddling, yeah. there would be no yeah. organic movement to achieve civil rights in this country. Exactly. So rather than say that this was an organic movement for racial equality uh, and social justice— they said this was all part that African Americans were being, and white Americans supportive of it, were being manipulated by the Kremlin to uh, basically destroy the Constitution via the civil rights movement. Dupes of the communist government. Yeah, and that was of a piece, really, with what white supremacists were also arguing. And actually, I think it does have echoes in the birtherism, right, claim that Barack Obama was not born in this country. He was a, basically a foreign element planted here as a fraud to also destroy the country from within, as, as the conspiracy theorists had it. And as we set this up for our next segment, talk to me about birtherism and Trump and this lineage that goes back to the Birchers. Well, uh, Trump was, of course, the most, as many people will remember, Trump was probably the most prominent, became the most prominent uh, birtherite. Uh, uh, of Obama's presidency. I mean, he really led the charge, and uh, he was in touch with leaders, I think, of the Tea Party. Sarah Palin, at one point, who I quote uh, in the book, says very nice things about Trump's leadership of the birther movement. And Trump had a very prominent, I think, in fact, that's in part how he built up a Twitter following, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't, you know, the art of the deal, (laughs) <laughs> that built it up. It was this birther claim. Galvanizing people around this question yeah. of the otherism of Obama. And that Obama was illegitimate, right? He was ineligible to be president because of this conspiracy. And he went on also mainstream outlets like The View and propagated this idea too. The idea being the enemy within Bircherite in the 50s and 60s, a part of our contemporary politics now. One thing ladies and gentlemen, leads to another. Matt Dalek is our guest. Segment three of The Takeout in just one second. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to The Takeout. Max Dalek is our guest. The book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. So... We've mentioned his name, Robert Welch. Give my audience a little bit of sense of who he was. Well, he was a candy manufacturer, uh, and his company sold, uh, I think, pom-poms and junior mints and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, other well-known candies Sugar babies. At the time. Sugar babies, right? And, uh, and he was also a, a member in the leadership of the National Association of Manufacturers, a and business guy. A business guy and also White, an author. White, well-to-do business guy. White, wealthy, Christian, uh, and also an author. He wrote a number of books in the 1950s. And um, in the 50s, gave a lot of lectures and wrote a lot of books basically saying, you know, this communist conspiracy is taking over the world, including internally within, within the United States. And yet he had a kind of respect for communist organizations, communist cadres, and you mentioned this number earlier, and I want you to go into a little bit of detail about it. John Birch Society groups 
were limited strictly to a membership of 20. And once it got to 20, it had to break off into another group, like communist cells, correct? Yeah, and I I believe that the Birch leadership was open about, they said, we copied this tactic from our enemy because they've had such great success. So why wouldn't we want to ape their their tactics Mm -hmm. and uh and the idea too was that they wanted to keep the society i think hidden from public view and the members hidden because they were worried that if the communists this is their view if the communists discovered that this incredibly effective movement was afoot that they would then destroy it before the birth society could really be built up Mm -hmm. and and so they wanted to keep it so their paranoia was 360 I mean, you know, it sounds like it, it went yeah, in almost yeah. every direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it, it they viewed it as the communists a, are stalking us. We have enemies yeah. in our government. Our president's a communist agent everywhere. Well, there are things look, to be afraid of. The, look, the logic was that, according to Welch and others, 60 to 70 percent of American institutions were basically communist run. And that, you know, the, the, the estimates varied, but five years, the country would be completely communist. Lost. So the country was always at two minutes to midnight, or maybe two <laughs> seconds to midnight. And with K- that kind K- of Kind view, of bleak. It was extremely bleak. And with that worldview, though, it becomes a little more understandable how you see your enemies in the media, uh, the... Uh, higher education um, among the elites uh, the elites everywhere and uh, and so the sense that they had to kind of and at one point for example I think a, a woman member of the society wrote in and suggested look send us our Birch Society material in basically brown paper envelopes because we don't want basically neighbors knowing mm-hmm. we're members uh, but also the postal service is the most likely first wedge of this like attack on us mm-hmm. and we don't want the postal service knowing we're members of this group right send it like you would pornography <laughs> i mean or worse right yes exactly yeah so yeah so there was um i mean know, just yeah. to illustrate yeah. the point just one last thing though about this 20 person chapter the other thing which is actually very insightful is that they could then operate inside their communities and they could kind of take the recommendations from the leadership and headquarters in Belmont, Massachusetts, and make it their own. So if they wanted to try and take over a PTA or run for school board or maybe hold a picket at a local movie house because it wasn't showing Americanist John Wayne films, they could kind of make the society their own. They could act, right? They could act on these ideas. And, the, and Birchers felt empowered. And that was one of the insights, I think, because they didn't want to just talk about it. They wanted to actually do something about the movement. Was it, was it anti-feminist? Well, uh, Phil Schlafly was a member uh, for a time, and it certainly was opposed to the feminist movement and had a vision of a kind of early 20th century role for women, right, as um, uh, homemakers, right, and uh, not in the workforce. And yet... As I argue in the book, Birch women, who were very effective, capitalized on uh, the second wave of feminism and the increased movement of women into the workforce and into politics as well, because they got very active politically. And so one of the interesting paradoxes for women Birchers is both their ideological views, but also their incredible uh, level of political activism and engagement. You mentioned Birchers could discuss and wage campaigns to talk to their PTA, run for school board. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a conversation in our country. It was in Virginia, it's in Tennessee, it's in Mississippi, it's in Florida. It's all over the country about, not necessarily PTAs, but school boards, curriculum, books that should or should not be included in curriculum, etc., etc., all echoes of Birchian movements and ideology in the 60s. Absolutely. And the Birch Society, too, was initially set up and remained primarily, as they saw it, an educational group. And what they wanted to do was... They all do. Yes, that's right. They're all the nonprofit. All, all education. All, all, you know, quote-unquote education. <laughs> um, but what they, they, in part, had given up, I think, or... or looked askance at the two-party political system as too corrupt, right? Eisenhower's party, you know, is communist run. And what they want to do is educate the masses, kind of tutor 
ordinary Americans about the dire nature of the threat. Well, how do you do that? One of the ways you do it is by going into the schools and saying the textbooks that our students are learning are actually communist-inspired. Sex education is immoral and part of this kind of communist effort to weaken the moral fiber of this country. And so the schools became important battlegrounds for Birchers, as did media and this alternative views that they had, right? The books and the articles that they produced, right? The alternative worldview to get around the kind of CBSs of the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they were very sh- effective, I think, and savvy in, um, in, in attacking the schools. And also these are civic institutions that were not seen as particularly political at the time. Do the political warriors on the right of our era know much about the Birch Society? Do they talk about it? Do they consider themselves successors or part of that lineage? Yeah, that's actually a a fantastic question. And it's very hard to tease out how aware they are. So someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who represents a part of the district of Larry McDonald, who was a leader of the Birch Society for a time. I don't know if she's, you know, aware of his association. But... um, I have taken note of how um, leaders of MAGA, for example, have, have talked about the Birch Society or, um, you know, the familiar names, people like Alex Jones, who is basically, I think at one point he said, my dad was a Bircher. And the book that sort of turned him on to conspiracy theories was a, a classic or the urtext of the Birch Society, helped radicalize Alex Jones. Um, Milk Mulvaney, who you've had on this mm-hmm. uh, program, at one point spoke to, because the Birch Society still exists, mm-hmm. and he spoke a number of years ago to a, a, a Birch group. So I think a lot of them are aware of it. I don't think that they've necessarily studied it and kind of copied it, but I think that there is a kind of way in which Steve Bannon is. is very much aware of your book. He said complimentary <laughs> things about it. Is he, yeah. he, he, he sounds like he's aware of what the Birch Society is. I, I mean, according to his podcast, he held up the book twice and uh, and said he, he thought it was an incredible book. How does that make which, you feel? Well, I, I, at first I was very nervous because someone told me he had you know, held up your book and I'm, I, I, was, I didn't know what he said about it or me. And, um, and then he said it was incredible. And a couple of good friends of mine actually said, look, that's actually a compliment because it means that what you were doing is actually history rather than primarily ideology. And, and I don't know why he likes the book, but my guess is uh, that one reason I, I, I give credit to the Birchers for their political insights. I show how powerful they were. And I think he probably likes the anti-establishment theme, right? That the Birchers, the fringe was kind of opposed to the, the Mitch McConnells of the world, wanted to kind of take over the Republican Party. Um, and as another person said, uh, that maybe it's a kind of blueprint for him. Well, maybe, maybe not. We will see. Time will tell on that. Birchers is the name of the book, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. We're at risk. Lunch has arrived. I've already plowed in, but uh, Matthew Dalek, our special author guest, will do that in the intervening break. And when we come back, segment four coming your way in just one moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Takeout. Riss is our host restaurant. Lunch is very good, as always. Matt is enjoying his. I'm enjoying mine. The book... Birchers, how the John Birch Society radicalized the American right. Uh, what do the Birchers' influence have to do 
with QAnon? Mm. Well, again, uh, I'm interested in the ideas. And QAnon, as much as I understand it, is a conspiracy theory about uh, really an evil government plot to destroy American liberties and, and, and also take down Trump. Uh, and again, the, the details differ, but the music is the same, mm-hmm. or very similar at least. Right. And Plot from within, destroy the country. We have to galvanize ourselves and organize ourselves to stop it. And, and that, you know, progressives or liberals, right, who, that they are really the, um, the greatest enemy. I mean, they don't call them liberals. They call them Marxists. Or, um, and, and also that, you know, career civil servants, right, people in the FBI or, depart, you know, elsewhere in the Department of Justice, people who um, really are essential to kind of the functioning. Or anyone part of the regulatory state. Or the regulatory state. But they're essential to the healthy functioning of, of democracy and in the function of government, that they are part of this plot. Um, and, uh, and that, of course, uh, has all kind of, um, you know, because if, if you believe that, once you believe that, there are a lot of other things you can believe about, you know, maybe what's happening at, at a pizza restaurant. Um, and then a guy came in because he thought that there was like a child sex ring uh, in uh, a basement, the basement that did not exist. And then he shot it up, and you know, he's still in jail. Uh, so, you know, QAnon, in, and, and I think that there's a reason why, at least these studies of the January 6th participants, their QAnon uh, adherents were uh, represented uh, in a, a considerable way. What did the John Birch Society and its members think about Roe versus Wade and the question of abortion, if anything? So the Birchers were... Uh, early on, I think, to the issue of abortion. And even before, I believe, Roe v. Wade, there were uh, uh, Birch documents or members of the society who describe abortion as uh, evil, like part of this evil wave of you know, moral transgression that was fundamentally uh, an affront. To, uh, to the character, the Christian character and values of the country as they saw it. Um, and uh, at one a summer camp, because the Birchers held summer camps. Summer camps. There was okay. a state, remember the state legislature, I think from Ohio. And according to the article I read, she passed around a vial with like a dead fetus to dramatize the, the horror of abortion for the campers. I mean, these are, these are I think, high school Students and of course it was of a piece with many other issues like rock and roll mm-hmm. and um, and other issues that drugs were s- drugs just seen as part of this yeah yeah really a kind of um, as part of this communist plot to really destroy the minds and the moral value system of American youth in particular uh, so so the Birchers were very uh, early to that and and then the last thing I'll say is uh, in terms of Roe v Wade. Uh, one of their biggest campaigns, they had front groups, and one of their biggest front groups, biggest campaigns was Impeach Earl Warren. Who was? Uh, well, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Republican, former governor of California, and, uh, and made a number of very famous uh, decisions, including Brown v. Board of Education, but also banning a prayer in schools and giving rights to criminal defendants. And there were a series of decisions that the Birchers thought were not just unconstitutional, but, again, fundamentally at odds with the character of the country. They were, you know, communist-adjacent, if not outright uh, uh, traitorous. And appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, exactly, yeah. The so, of the communist government. So part so of— So they believed. Yes. And so it all fit. It all fit. <laughs> it did all fit. Which and, is one of the things that keeps the conspiracy theory going. It fits at a yeah. notional level if you believe yes. the pieces ought to fit. If you're inclined yeah. to believe that you need to put f- pieces together, yes. they do fuse together. They do. I mean, well, look, and, and most conspiracies have some kind of element of truth to them. Um, but often it's not a very large element. And uh, oftentimes you can spin out of that a mm, at least semi-plausible sounding uh, uh, plot and you so you see it yeah. not because it's there but because you see it 
Yeah, well, it's it's really about belief, right? It's mm-hmm. almost uh, about believing. Mm-hmm. And because you believe it, right, evidence... Therefore, it's true. And evidence can't really counteract it. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then, so... A pre-enlightenment orientation, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. And, I believe it, therefore, it's yeah. true. Not that it's true, yeah. therefore, I believe it. Yeah, I mean, it really is divorced <clears throat> from... Uh, facts, mm-hmm. in a sense. And, you know, another point I make is that the Birchers were very effective conspiracy entrepreneurs. They're really entrepreneurial in how they kind of describe these conspiracies and how they sold them. Mm-hmm. And getting back to uh, Roe v. Wade, though, the court, the Supreme Court, was seen as one of the, I guess, beachheads, if mm-hmm. you will, of this communist conspiracy. And so Roe v. Wade was, in a way, of a piece with a series of decisions over at least two decades, maybe more, in the Birch worldview that had trampled on the Constitution. And if you drove around in your car in the 60s in rural parts of America or just outside of large cities like my hometown of San Diego, I remember these billboards as a child. Something about either impeach Earl Warren or uh, overturn the Warren court or something to that effect. And those were all Bircher financed. Yep, help save America, impeach Earl Warren. And that was one of their... I think, most effective and most iconic campaigns. Um, you know, people knew about it, right? They, they, and it was visible. And so, you know, we have, of course, the Internet today. But this was something that became iconic because people saw it and they couldn't avoid it. And they were traveling on the, on the road. And wasn't it said in your book that in defense of this or the rationale behind it, they said, we, don't, we may not win... Yeah. Yeah. But our enemies will know we were here. Exactly. And Welch, the, the founder of the Birch Society, said he understood it was unlikely they were going to impeach Earl Warren. Because at the time, especially, it was a very radical step. You didn't really impeach chief justices. Uh, and he understood that Congress, which had the constitutional right, but Congress was highly unlikely to impeach him. But he said, we are going to fight like hell, essentially. And... By the time we're finished, the enemy will know, you know, that we have basically taken a pound of flesh out of them. And to some extent, I think he was right uh, because it generated a lot of movement and questions. I mean, they injected the issue into the public sphere in a way that maybe arguably it had not been before. And the question of the court, right, uh, became more political in that sense. And now Birchers weren't the only ones doing it, but they did help contribute to that dynamic. We'll conclude where we started, quoting again from The Fix. You told me something wrong. I know I listened too long, but one thing leads to another. Birchers, how the John Birch Society radicalized the American right. Matthew Dalek is the author. He's been our special guest. Our thanks again to Riss. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake especial. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. You already knew that. Matt Dalek is our guest this week. His book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. When did this idea come to you, and how difficult was it to pursue? Great question. Uh, Like a lot of other historians and journalists, right, searching for explanations of Trump, uh, it came to me, I think, early on in the Trump presidency, um, 2017, 2018, uh, but it evolved because at first I was thinking I would just look at the leaders of the Birch Society. That's not what the book became. All credit to actually my publisher, Basic Books, 
for pushing me to expand it and try to write a history, a history of this movement and also to bring it up to the present. And the book goes up to January 6th. The last third is about the afterlife of the Birch Society, how its ideas shape uh, uh, the right and, and really essentially the Birchite takeover uh, of the Republican Party and conservatism over the decades. In terms of um, appeal, well, uh, I think the way I initially conceived of it was not the right way. I think the way it turned out was sort of the right way, right, mm-hmm. to tell this movement. Um, and the book, I think, uh, you know, it was hard to sell, although I got a couple of, of good uh, interests from good publishers. And, um, and then I would say what's been interesting, too, is that since it's come out, and I did not anticipate this at all. Uh, I've had a lot of people uh, email me to tell me their stories about their experiences with the Birch Society. Their family stories. Family stories and also maybe their personal mm. memories. Okay. And that has been really interesting. And, and actually information I wish I'd known when I was writing the book. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll, uh, if there's an updated, you know, afterward, uh, uh, be included. But, um, but it's interesting to kind of hear people and how these memories live on and how it affected them and how they remember it decades later. Reading the book, it strikes me that one of the things that political reporters tend to forget and overlook is that this is still a center-right country, white and Christian in its primary identification. Fact. Birchers are part of that story and a not insignificant part of the story when you think about the duration and the idea that you implied a moment ago that Bircher philosophy was storming the steps of the Capitol on January yeah. 6, 2021. Yeah, and one of the points I try to make, so at one point in the book, I think there's a senator who says in 1964 that the Birch Society is this weird foreign presence in America. One of the points I try to make in the book is that that is totally wrong, that they're actually deeply American, and that they're part of a a, a much deeper, longer tradition uh, of a kind of what I describe as a fall, far right alternative political tradition, and uh, for the reasons you know we talked about, right? The conspiracy mm-hmm. theories, the more explicit racism, hostility to government, change, yeah, and 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 the sense of the enemy within, and also that you know government is not just a problem, but that it's evil, mm-hmm. right? Which is right. a distinction from how Reagan. <clears throat> thought about government and talked about it, at least as, as president. Um, and also this more violent mode of politics mm-hmm. because the Birchers... Much were, more confrontational. Yeah, the Birchers. And people are, are writing me stories about their confrontations with Birchers. Birchers chasing them out of a hotel, for example, um, or blaring uh, when their you know, children are doing a UNICEF drive, blaring a speech by Robert Welch talking about the e- communist evils of UNICEF to these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so very confrontational. And... Um, and really anti-democratic in a way, at least anti-multiracial democracy, I think, as we have come to understand it. And so one of the points I make is that they're deeply American and they're a part of the country's history, but they were more extreme, uh, uh, consigned to the fringe, and they've become more mainstream. But still, I think, as you suggested uh, in your question, not the dominant, not a majority, a majoritarian movement. So, you know, we have three threshold questions almost everyone on the show gets. I think you're probably familiar with them, so take them whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life and why? Favorite movie? And if you're going to enjoy some music, what artist or genre is that most likely to be? Okay, favorite movie, absolutely Star Wars, okay. uh, which maybe is four. a familiar Sorry, we'll answer. We'll start at four, right? New well, this is uh, this is the the, yeah, the, first, the first one that one, right. was made exactly right. yes and because it now came, numbered four yes. yeah yeah because it, it came out when I was a a, a kid mm-hmm. and so I saw it maybe eight nine times in the movie theater uh, absolutely iconic mm-hmm. um, favorite uh, music mm-hmm. favorite band um, doesn't have to be a band it could yeah, be an artist yeah um, or I genre mean, I you know I. Really like, uh, I really like, I like Bruce Springsteen. You know, I'm sure you get it a lot. <laughs> we uh, do get it a lot. Yeah, but um, <laughs> you too and Bruce Springsteen, yeah, yeah. the most frequently yes. cited in that answer. Well, I mean, the thing about Bruce Springsteen is that um, he's really a brilliant guy, and he's and he's kind of a poet and one hell of and an entertainer. He's an incredible musician, but you know, when you listen to him, 
talk about his music, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I think, beyond the music itself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, again, it's sort of an obvious one. And then... Um, most influential favorite, book and why? Oh, most influential book. That's really tough. Um, I would say that I'm going to go with um, a really important book for me. It was one that I read, I think, right after a college called A Bright Shining Lie. Mm-hmm. Neil Sheehan. Neil Sheehan, who I think uh, uh, passed away in the last mm-hmm. uh, couple of years. Um, uh, uh, incredible journalist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this was a biography of John Paul Vann, yep. but it really was a, an incredible, like a tour de force, like a window into all the flaws of the Vietnam War, all mm-hmm. the failures on the U.S. part. It is an epic book mentioned on this program a couple of times before. Matt Dalek has been our special guest. Bircher is how the John Birch Society radicalized the American right. I'm Major Garrett. It's been your Takeout Outtake Especial. We shall see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.